Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights, 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 lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Uh, before we get started with the recap, though, I, I do want to to shout out to Arts Build here in Chattanooga. Uh, arts Build is our local arts agency. They set up a, a grassroots recovery fund back in March, and this was for uh, organizations with annual budgets of under $50,000. Finally, they were able to create a, a fund that would help uh, smaller organizations and I'm happy to say that uh, for four straight months, ETC uh, benefited from that grant. And the money that we we, we got from that uh, recovery fund is what has helped fund us producing this second season. Um, the first season, we were just sort of flying by the seat of our pants. We weren't able to pay anybody, uh, any of the artists, which is something that we you know, pride ourselves on being able to do. Uh, so we were, you know, calling in all kinds of favors from playwrights and actors. And, and of course, Dana and Christy, our hosts, and uh, Red, who does our sound, and Casey, who does our everything else. So um, anyway, but this season we were able to pay people, and that is all due uh, in great part thanks to this grassroots recovery fund from Allied Arts, or from Arts Build, rather. Amazing. Thank you. Yes, it's so it's so important to keep funding the arts, especially during during these difficult times. So we are very grateful. Starting with episode one of our recap, and this was released back in April, so it's been several weeks. Um, uh, this was Donna Hoke's survival strategy. I think I said it on the podcast, but I'll say it again. This play made me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, and then that people hear that and automatically think that's a negative connotation, but uh, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. What are intimate boundaries with people? What what are what are my personal boundaries? Um, what are boundaries I would expect from from other relationships, friendships, business relationships, coworker relationships? So uh, I think it it did its job mm-hmm. um, as a piece of theater in that it it made me a little uncomfortable. I never got that sense. I When I read the play, what I was thinking is, oh my God, I need a hug. I need a hug from somebody, you know? <laughs> That's all that I focused on was this idea of a hug, you know, being something that is necessary, that connection is necessary, and how we've all been denied that because of the pandemic. So to hear that, it made you uncomfortable. And then when you explained it, and I was like, oh, that would make me uncomfortable too. Cause as someone who is very huggy and I do genuinely tell my friends that I love them. Uh, so that wasn't necessarily it. I've had plenty of um, platonic relationships being partnered up and then having someone other than your partner know these deep levels about you is really where my mind started to, to wander and go, what is, how does that make me feel? There's great place, especially in this past year and a half for uh, quote unquote mindless entertainment or having a show that I can have run in the background. Uh, but this was not one of those pieces. And for that, I am grateful. Well, you know, and it's interesting, you know, that we're having this discussion about the the, the different ways that we sort of experienced it whether it was the performance, the reading, or the, or whatever. Uh, one of the things that Donna said in her interview was, she says, I can create the character in the story, but the others need to fill in the details. 
And I just, I just, I feel like that's really the essence of what this conversation is about. And kind of, you know, like I was, I'm talking about the hug and the, and that, that for me, that was the most important thing. And you are taking it to a different level. And that's part of the symbiotic relationship, not only between artist and playwright, artist and storyteller, or artist as a storyteller, but it's also between the audience, you know. So it would be really interesting to, you know, to hear from our listeners to see what they thought uh, about that and, and, and where they took it, you know. But the other thing I was blown away by in this episode is what a brilliant businesswoman Donna is, Donna Hoke, our playwright. So not not only just a brilliant artist, right? And I think we have really great, strong artists across the board in both seasons of Lights Up. But Donna was just such a wonderful, shining example of a business person and an advocate for herself and her art. Yeah, that was one of the one of the interesting things about her interview based on the uh, that was different from a lot of the other interviews that you uh, you guys have done uh, was how focused she was on the reality of of what she's doing you know yeah she actually i i wrote down one of my favorite bits of knowledge from donna because there were plenty of them but she actually said success for herself her definition of success was success as if there is always a next project happening and i have such great respect for that and and for her whole outlook because it is a business and the fact that she was just like, to me, I'm making it if I'm making art. And that is such a beautiful bottom line. Um, and, and I really hope. Yeah, I was going to say, really a great way to start the season, too. That kind of mantra, because, you know, that's what we weren't, we weren't making anything. And we wanted to make something. And this is what came out of that. And now we want to continue making it. And so it's like, what, what's the next play, you know, and, and people are sending me next plays to, to read and produce and, and they're getting excited about it. The playwriting community is getting really excited about it. And that for me is defining success. It doesn't matter that we don't have a hundred thousand listeners yet. You know, um, We'll get there, you know? Um, so one of the things that I did data as we listened to each of the plays was I, I was like, what's the funniest punchline from the show? Because, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I just thought that that would be kind of a fun thing to do. Um, and uh, would you like to hear what I think is the funniest line from um, Survival Strategy? Always. always. I always want to know what makes you giggle. <laughs> or guffaw. One of those things is Giggling a fall. Okay. So I thought it was uh, uh, one of the things that uh, one of the characters said was, if I'm not as needy at home, it might make my marriage stronger. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Moving on to our second play. Um, which was, I mean, another female playwright. Um, and so uh, Dana Leslie Goldstein's The God Part was our second episode. I thought this was such a great follow-up to the survival strategy um, because it, it, it almost was a 180-degree flip from a, this relationship that we heard in survival strategy. Um, so to me, listening, going back and listening to these, all of our season back to back, I thought the God part was such a wonderful reverse look at a relationship to hear this play. And, you know, you guys talked about it a lot, but the whole religious aspect 
you know, and, and just how genuine and sincere the religious debate was in this piece. Dana had a lot of that poetry uh, and and just literature background in her writing, and and I think this this play is a perfect example of how both poetic in nature, the story and language was, but also extremely naturalistic. She was able to do that magical realism that we talked about. And I think I think having that background in poetry and literature probably helped to kind of um, let that germinate in this mm-hmm, play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that Dana said that I really liked, uh, she said, faith is grounded in loss. And I thought that was that was such a fascinating sort of take on life, and probably what made what made the discussion about religion and uh, and and Judaism and all of that what made that so uh, real and so um, uh, approachable was the fact that this idea of faith is grounded in loss. And I think it was something that a lot of us felt in the past year and a half, whether it was directly through loss of a loved one or loss of touch or loss of a relationship or, but also there was, as a human race, there was a global loss and we were absorbing that. Our brains and our bodies were absorbing that. And I I think that perhaps too is why maybe these plays had these words or themes because we do as much as we try to deny it and we are we should be recognizing our own individualities we are all part of the human race and when there is something as major as this pandemic on a global scale those little parts of sameness of of togetherness start to vibrate Mm. so that we can get through and i think this this play really brought up all of those themes and ideas and and I loved talking to Dana. There was so much beauty in that conversation. And she really talked about her love of ensemble theater and devised theater. And you can tell she's just really uh, a woman and a playwright of the people and thrives in groups and connection. And And that's something I feel the same about. I'm, I do love connecting people and feeling a connection with someone. And that just came so through through so clearly Mm -hmm. um one of my favorite moments was when she told us that her favorite word was joy Mm -hmm. because in a in a very and we talked about how dana also kind of subverted expectations a little bit in this play and i think she did the same thing by telling us that joy was her word because she has this quiet sense of joy and zest for life running through her. It is not exuberant. It is not over the top. It is just clear that she is very content with what she's doing and very confident. Straight from the heart. I think she was just as delighted to talk to us about her life as we were to talk to her about her play. And that just that just really, I think, uh, for, for me, really made the, the episode very exciting and very fun to listen to. So Yeah, and I think, Bronte and Gage also gave really genuine, beautiful performances of one of the longer pieces we had this season. So I think, I think all around, it just was a very special episode. I agree with you. I agree with you a hundred percent. And she's also written a monologue for our final episode. Excellent. Yeah. It's called From Astoria to Bedminster. So um, Gary, 
Did you have a, a giggle or guffaw moment in this? I did. Play as well? I did. So this is comes in that moment where Bronte was talking to Gage about Mazeltov, and and Gage just so genuinely asks, "Did you, did you just memorize all that?" And she's like, "No, but I did Google it. I thought it would make you feel better." <laughs> Again. Well, if people don't like these lines, they will definitely enjoy you laughing at these lines. So. All right. Um, moving on to our third episode. And this was kind of an exciting one because we did something new in this episode, which was we added the soundscaping. Um, and I really think that that kind of enhanced the quality of the of the readings going forward. But um, this was Ken Pruce's uh, Elusive Pursuit of Maximum Bliss. Yes, I loved this play. First of all, you could not have cast it. Casey and you, whoever did the deciding, could not have cast it any better with Paige Maddox-Burns and Daniel Meeks. Listening to the play just brought me Maximum <laughs> Bliss. I love them. I went to school with Paige and we all would listen to her perform all day long. So I liked this play a lot too, because it had that kind of black mirror style of sci-fi, but it was less dark than most black mirror episodes. There was some hope. There was some love romance opportunity. There was some bliss there. So I thought that was really lovely and it was also our third um, play looking at a male-female relationship and so we had three in a row of, of very different um, facets of a romantic relationship which I thought was interesting in the in the ordering of this and you know I I, I will say this about about this play I, I I knew I liked it when I read it but I had no idea why uh, and it was not a play that I thought that would be easy to produce on stage just because of all of the sort of technical elements of it. You know, when I read a play the first time, I, I, you know, what does my mind do and how does my mind see it? But there was something about this play that had nothing to do with what my mind saw, but it just really spoke to me on a level that I didn't understand. And it wasn't until I, uh, I listened to the episode where I kind of made some sense of it for myself, but it, it's almost like this play gave a right brain explanation of my left brain life. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Like I have an obsession with finding happiness and, and, and avoiding conflict and, and making people feel good and making people laugh and laughing myself and, and making conscious efforts to, to see the world in a brighter, in a brighter way. I think this was the first play where we really kind of crashed into the idea of, just be present. That's something we all had to figure out how to do this past year and a half. That seemed to be one of the big global challenges that was presented to us was be present. Um, and I, I thought this was such a beautiful way to do it. And it's so funny that you mentioned that you were thinking about the technology and you know your producer brain was on a little bit at first read. Because honestly, when I think back to this play, it's a, it's a first date. For two people who don't know they're on a first date, you know? Um, so I just love the sweetness of that. And then of course you talk to Ken and it's kind of just astounding that this quiet sweetness in this play came out of him because 
he is just the most lively, energetic, like he teaches middle he school. The, I know, and it was amazing. I mean, he really has this depth and this breadth of work and he talks about writing those tailored plays for his middle schools. I think that maybe is where this comes from is that it's so clear that Ken is someone who sees each person that he is with and wants to see each person oh, for yeah. who they are. I love that. I love that. The, the, the science of it was just enough to make me not care that I didn't understand the science of it, you know? Um, but yeah, and, and then it just, like you said, on the Black Mirror thing, you just, you were right there on the edge of this is possible, you know? And that, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess it's frightening, but it's also kind of exciting, you know, um, that if technology could really help us find true happiness, uh, I'd invest. I loved part of the advice that Ken imparted that was given to him that he passed on to us as far as writing was the only job of a first draft is to exist. Do you have a, a giggle or guffaw well, moment I, from the elusive pursuit of There was Bliss? a moment in the play that, that made me laugh a lot. Um, but I have to say, Ken says, the, uh, he says, perfect theater reflects the world around us with questions. But there's always a punchline. So I just thought, I was like, there is. There is always a punchline. You just gotta find it. And for me, the punchline in Ken's play was when uh, Daniel uh, found out that he didn't, you know, become a professional baseball player. And uh, he says, "So was it a wild pitch or a line drive that injured me?" And and uh, Paige says, Paige's character says, "No, you just tripped on the pitcher's mound on the way to the dugout." <laughs> So neat. All right. Well, moving on into episode four, um, uh, we have our first Canadian playwright. Guy, our Canadian playwright, but Canadian by way of the UK, gave us our little homage to Beckett with Waiting for Hello. And to find out that he didn't even, he doesn't even like Beckett that much. <laughs> you know? but he's, and you're right, Dana, you hit the nail on the head when you call it, you called it an homage as opposed to a satire or a parody. It was not that at all. It was. I think, I think Guy definitely made Beckett accessible. And he mentioned this in the interview, A, by creating this as a 10 minute one act play. And B, we talked about that, the idea of being trapped um, and how we've all felt trapped, especially in the past year and a half, but there was a little bit of hope. And I think it eased some audience anxiety by knowing that these people do eventually leave the workplace. They have kids who go to hockey practice, who do whatever. So adding those two elements really makes Beckett and theater of the absurd a little more accessible. He describes himself as an enthusiastic amateur. And I just was like, ah, that's so, again, so refreshing to have my expectations uh, sort of um, not met, but in a pleasant way, you know, just he yeah. he's like, yep, probably the least uh, educated playwright you have on your season. And I'm like, whoa, 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 <laughs> that's, not, that's not what well, we're looking for, you know, educated in a completely different way. So not only was this our homage to Beckett 
Theater of the Absurd. It's our first non-romantic play of season two. And uh, our very first and perhaps only true government-employed scientist uh, playwright <laughs> that we have ever interviewed, which was fascinating. Although I am on the look for more government-employed scientific playwrights, if you have a play, please send it in. So, yeah, I really liked I really liked the interview that you had with Guy. I think it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> um, and uh, what really struck me with... Um, with Guy's, uh, Guy's interview was he talks about his favorite place being in the wings uh, while a play is going on. I know, see, there you go right now. You can't even control it right now. Uh, that was just such a magical moment. And that one, and that, what was interesting was I think it was, I think it was Ken right before him uh, said something about like, the moment right before the curtain opens or the lights come up or something. No, it was right before that. Yeah. And, oh, right before the applause at the end of the show, that moment, that's where he likes to, can like to be. And I, so to have those, both of those right up against each other, I thought was really special. And that, that is a magical place to be standing in the wings, you know, because no, I mean, we all, we all know what's going on back there, but the audience has no clue, you know, and, and, um, and but he the way that the way that he talked about that and that story that he gave us about that pebble in his shoe I, I mean he may have he may be an enthusiastic amateur but uh, I I would believe that he had the training of a master so <laughs> you know well at the heart of all of the art is if you're willing to be genuine and and to be giving of yourself over to it and guy very clearly does give himself over. And I do want to make mention, um, we talked very briefly in the interview about this being a genderless cast, because once again, we were definitely trying to, and I think we really succeeded with having way more female playwrights. We're trying to push further into having more actors and playwrights of color and um, within the gender spectrum, which we are, I think, can even continue to improve upon in the next season. We're going international, which is amazing. But we talked about these genderless casting possibilities and how Guy often likes to do that because he likes to just write the words and the conversations and doesn't necessarily always want to specify um, a character's gender and or ethnicity. And I do want to make mention that after the interview, oh, and then, sorry, so then we got on the discussion of whether or not Beckett's estate would allow for Godot to be performed with anything other than men. And, uh, w you know, we found out, no, the estate has very clearly stated men only. Cool, patriarchy. Um, but Guy, post-interview, uh, emailed me and Gary and Chelsea and the team this article that he found uh, where there was a play produced in the UK that another playwright wrote, which was a true satire on Waiting for Godot because it was two female actors waiting at a payphone, at a phone, to hear if they had been approved by the Beckett estate to perform Godot. So he, talk about being invested and giving yourself over. He did some research and he was like, look what I found. And so there, and I'm sorry, I didn't have it pulled up right now. Um, but, but to name the production of the play, but these, these women 
did this whole play based on women waiting for the okay um, to perform Godot as females. So no, and and that's great. I'll put the uh, I'll put that uh, link to that article in the in the. Uh, and and again, Guy has also given us a monologue for our final episode, and it's about um, an individual who is having an obsessive neuroses over choices. Um, so my my uh, <clears throat> again, not quite a guffaw, but definitely more than just a giggle moment was when Savvy says his name is Abel. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Dana, you even had a good punchline in this episode. Are you oh, ready? I did. No, did you I? did. I'm ready. And you, I and love you, to hear you had been back to the yes, and you had been planning this one. And as soon as you said it, I was like, I, my eyes rolled. Uh, <laughs> we no longer have to wait for your hello, but we have to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> wait, can I can I tell you a secret? Yeah, yeah. I didn't plan that. I came up with it in the moment. <laughs> All right, so moving on to our next play, uh, play number five, uh, is Bug Rescuing by Judy Class. It was so delightful for me to listen to this because this was one of the first plays I did not think about COVID at all. It felt, and it's so, I am perhaps ironic that it was set by a pool on a summer day because this play just felt refreshing to me. I don't know. When I read it, I was like, this is just so real. This is just so like. I think um, we, we, we referred to the play as simple but specific, yeah. which I think is what makes magic in art. If, if it can be simple but specific. And I think Judy did such a brilliant job with that. And, and yet again, here we are with another relationship play with a completely different facet. We haven't seen the same facet twice within these romantic relationship plays right. and and i think you could probably no i take that back i was gonna say you could swap genders with this but one of the things that we love talking to judy about once again another female playwright and every one of our playwrights in every interview brought up the fact that there are so few female playwrights produced and how the odds are stacked against them. Um, and then, you know, Marge in our later episode, we'll talk about, talks about how few women of color playwrights are produced. It's even worse. Right. And so there is this great little feminist lean to this relationship where, where she doesn't want this character doesn't want to be rescued by a man and doesn't want to be dependent on a man and wants to define her life by her own terms. And so in, in that, I would say that uh, I wouldn't want to gender swap this play. And I loved, I loved that specificity of as someone who is in her mid thirties and single and very content being there. As someone who hates confrontation, I really, I was refreshed to use the same word again, by the confrontation element of this play. Um, you had the the unflinching, unapologetic, but really kind of like unsure of how to handle female character, you know, what she was experiencing, but knowing that what she was experiencing was important to tell 
and was important to communicate. And then you have this male character, again, so refreshing that he wasn't a white knight. He recognized that his the way that he was going to, you know, get was to hear what she said and to respond to what she was saying while not giving up his truth either, you know, and his truth that I want you and I want to be with you. And if that means that I have to pick up a cockroach with my fingers and place it in the grass gingerly, then I'm going to do it, you know? And so I think both of these characters were well-defined. Yeah. I, I wrote down that this was a hopeful example of true compromise and working in love Mm -hmm. and and i love seeing that portrayed yeah Yeah. and just to talk about judy for a moment and i I mean judy is probably the closest example we have of a renaissance woman that we have interviewed all season long um so she did stand up (laughs) <laughs> she comes from a family of writers. Yeah. She does uh she does musical writing. She's she does singing, she does lyrics. Um she did the whole steampunk version of Tartuffe with rhyming couplets. She's done adaptations. She teaches like Judy every time dropped a kernel of knowledge. We were just like, "Wait, what? You also do what?" <laughs> She Come just again? had, yes. I mean, there was, there are a million sides and facets to Judy, and it, it was she's so humble about all of them. You know, we they kind of just dropped out in in the most nonchalant way that we were blown away by. <laughs> yeah, she is a, a Renaissance woman. She's a she she's been around many blocks, so to speak, in the writing world, and that was that was just really good and and. And I, again, this is one of my favorite plays of the of our season was Bug Rescuing. I really liked it. All right. So did did we have any giggles and tears in this one as well? No, no tears. No tears. Okay, good. Dana, you, good. you managed to keep yourself together in this one. But Thank I goodness. did not. <laughs> um, towards the uh, end of the play, uh, <laughs> Joseph's character says, you know, I never liked Baywatch. Don't I get points for that? <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that line. <laughs> All talking about how nerdy he was trying to be, which I thought was just, again, um, uh, very refreshing, very refreshing. Uh, and I will, I will leave the, we'll leave this episode on this note from Judy. Um, is that she said, "What happened in Bug Rescuing is what she always hopes to have happen in the plays that she writes, and that's when the playwright serves as an eavesdropper or a transcriber." Uh, moving on, episode six, which is uh, "Vigilance" by Michael Sockle. I think one of the greatest things about this episode was Mike was not at all the person I was expecting to be the playwright of this play. Ah. In in a really positive way. Yeah. Um, I guess because here we are, and and perhaps the listeners felt like this too, and if you didn't, please chime in. Or if you did, I love it when people are on my side. <laughs> um, but <laughs> not that there's a side. Right. But I guess for me, here we are. We have this play that is about Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City bombing. It presents to us law enforcement, media, veterans. Um, there's political undertones. And then 
we meet Mike, and he is this ex-radio jockey from the Jersey Shore who, you know, he talks to us about his cancer diagnosis and his treatment, and he's he's a father, and he's on the school board, and he's so exuberant, and he's talking about being present and being on his bike, and it was just, it's, I guess it's like finding out that, like, the head cheerleader listens to true crime documentaries type of thing. <laughs> like you, and, and, and I was feeding into a stereotype, right? You expect someone who writes an Oklahoma city bombing play to perhaps be a real history buff or really into politics. And not to say that Mike isn't any of those things, but he just had this exuberance and he was such a wonderful listener and so present and so interested in humanity. And we talked about the humanity of this play and how he crafted that in. Um, I was just so pleasantly surprised to find that this was the man behind this play. I think you, you might've said it in the interview or, <clears throat> but the, the idea that, you know, playwrights and artists, we can humanize the monsters that are in our society uh, to get a different perspective. You know, and I think that that's a really, that's a, that's a really uh, great responsibility that we have. Yes. And we talked about that. And I think, so uh, to give a little background on my insight to this, I worked on a play with Tectonic Theater Project that Moises is still currently writing and workshopping. Um, and it was a, about a Holocaust play, but it focused more on the Nazis and the people who ran these concentration camps. And we talked a lot about the fact that it's very easy to call someone a monster, but what actually makes something heinous, something upsetting, something tragic, is that it is committed by someone who could be me or you. What are the choices that led them down this path? And when you start to look at that, you realize how human someone is, and so I thought Mike just so brilliantly allowed us to see, as opposed to walking in and knowing you're seeing a 9-11 play or an Oklahoma City bombing play or or even maybe eventually in the future, a, a COVID play, mm -hmm. right? If you know you're going in to see something about a, tr a well-known tragedy, you bring in your preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And he really crafted this play so that the audience had no preconceived notions. Right. Yeah, and I, I think, it, you know, one of the things that theater does for people, um, and one of the things that I really love about being an artist is, is just how our empath, empathic nature is developed through the art that we create. And so I, and I, and I think about this and I'm like, this is, it just really helps to def it helps the it helps bring the audience into that empathic sense that that artists have. You know, it starts to share a little bit of of what it's like. You know, as actors, we have to be the the biggest advocates for the characters that we play. That's part of our responsibility. You know, it doesn't matter if they're good or bad or evil or monstrous. We have to advocate for who they are as the actor playing them, so that we get an honest and sincere performance. You know, because we get to see the we get to see a person who if we knew who that person was before we wouldn't see the same person that we saw in the play, you know? Mm. So, yeah. And the other brilliant thing about this play that we found out was that this was the second play Mike had ever written. 
I mean, that was another thing that I was totally not expecting that to be his journey. And he was like, yeah, this is my second play. But one of my favorite things that he said, because we often ask our playwrights how they feel about getting a prompt, right? That's right. been also a running theme and a question, especially with people who write one acts and 10 minute plays because of the submission process, often they get a prompt. And so we usually ask our playwrights, how do you feel about a prompt? And his response was so beautiful. And I could feel like I should just add this to so many facets of my life. But he said, never reject a source of inspiration. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was just a great way to look at it. Um, he also said when we were talking about writing full length versus 10 minute plays, he said, your story ends what it ends. That's the mm. advice someone told him was your story ends what it ends. There is a moment uh, for me in this play, which I thought was very funny. Uh, very uh, at the very beginning of the play, uh, Autumn's character says, what's lake effect snow? <laughs> and Zach's character goes, well, it's white and it's cold. <laughs> Just, that's all I needed. <laughs> I was like, this is that got me. That was a giggle. That was a Gary giggle. All right, moving on to episode seven. Uh, and uh, this is Black, White, and Red All Over by Daniel Prilliman, the youngest of our playwrights. And and we should mention that you performed in this one. You were Terrence. <laughs> and our dear, sweet Elise Mayfield know, was Ligling slash Candace. We'll, uh, we'll use her proper name, Candace. <laughs> um, oh my God, that was so much fun. I just, Elise is just hilarious. I just love performing I mean, with Elise. The casting was really on par for this too, actually. I do have to say, and in totally non-biased way, um, as as someone who knows both of you and your performance abilities, this this really hit the nail on the head, and it was a joy to listen to. Oh well, thank you, thank you. That was, I'll take that compliment. Oh, yeah, um, and you know, uh, so one of the things that I wrote down about what Daniel said, and you had just mentioned it, uh, was something that Mike said, and so I guess it's echoed in, in Daniel, but you know, you again had asked him about the 10 minute versus the full length, and he says, you know, for him, the length of the play is determined by the scope of the idea. Boil the idea down, like, okay, I'm going to write a play about X, and he was able to very clearly find that in his mind, and then... Right, where it seems like it's maybe a little more nebulous for some of our other playwrights. He's like, okay, no, the play is like this. And and we talked about Daniel's one of the people, um, few people this season, we've had it happen in the past, who really is a performer and an actor and still is and trained as an actor first. And I mentioned that that's kind of an actor mindset thing, right? We have to get to the heart of what the objective is what the beat is what the moment is so then we can flesh out from there that's often how we're trained to to behave as an actor and he really kind of brilliantly put this into his playwriting and then he also said that he likes to write one page at a time yep, I have. also just so wise yeah, and so wonderful yeah. that get down to the essence and just don't just be present, you know, don't yeah, worry about yeah. what it's going to be one page at a time. And I, he had some real grasp on, on his process in that way. Right. And, you know, he, uh, he talked on the new play exchange, uh, 
thing. He was like, yeah, so on New Play Exchange, I have all the plays that I feel comfortable with people reading. <laughs> you know, like, So in my mind, there's like a plethora of work that Daniel is hiding from us, you know, <laughs> that we all need to get our hands on. Um, uh, and, and, and I did. I did go to New Play Exchange uh, and look up Daniel, and because I had to read the uh, the sequel to um, to Black, White, and Red all over, and it is not as Daniel indicates in his interview, just simple slapstick. It is just as um, hilarious and also sentimental as uh, Black, White, and Red all over. So. Um, you you may you may definitely see uh, etc producing these two together sometime because I think that they're really cool and if he wants to write some more penguin plays, um, all for it. We talked about him doing an anthology. Um, you know, we we asked him, uh, "Is that on the horizon?" And I'm so glad you mentioned New Play Exchange because I that's another thing that we can say. Every single one of our playwrights mentioned New Play Exchange in their interview. Every single one. And Daniel really talked it up and talked about how affordable it is and how accessible and wonderful. So if you're a listener of Lights Up and you love reading new plays or you are a playwright or you are an actor searching for new material, if you have not subscribed to New Play Exchange by now, what are you waiting for? Yeah, what are you waiting for? And we're not sponsored by them at all, but this sounds like such an invaluable tool that it just across the board and oftentimes without prompting, the mm-hmm. playwrights would bring it up. New play exchange, new play exchange. Right, right. So um, that was another thing that jumped out at me that was like, damn, that's really valuable. <laughs> well, and, and I actually, you know, as a producer, I went on there and I was like, all right, let me just look at all these other plays that these writers have been you know, hiding from me on the season. And I was able to just download play after play after play. You know, I read some of Ken's stuff, some of uh, Marge's stuff, some of... Um... And I will just say that this play was another relationship play, but it was animal relationships, which we had a whole new view and a whole new look again. Mm-hmm. Nothing has been the same twice, which we talked about having animal characters. And he said, these characters are humans who just don't look like humans. I thought that was so touching in an unexpected way and beautiful. And in the the same way that he wrote this as a COVID play that was not written about COVID, that it was drew inspiration from a joyful news article during COVID, during the pandemic. It, It was just a very lovely touching moment to talk about that i do think that you know there's something very uh maybe in the atmosphere about where the inspiration for this play came from because it in my mind it's not a covid play because it's not about covid but there's the idea of racism and how uh, i mean just how like you know icing on a cake he just layered that into this story and and you don't even realize it until you realize it this simple little play about a penguin and a panda both black and white um and it showed a lot of skill and um and also um just a lot of you know awareness about what's going on topically without having to hit the nail on the head so hard I think that's one of the benefits of having a younger voice in here too, because oh, I yeah. think people that's th- that generation is 
so tapped into that that yeah yeah it would just work so well i don't i have no words no i showed a lot of skill and they can explain things that we can't yet explain because we're still trying to understand it ourselves, you know? I don't know. Did you, were you able to pick just one moment between you and Elise? <laughs> I mean, play? uh, yes. And, and, and yeah. And like, we all, we all know what it is, right? We could all say it together. <laughs> Wanna fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, on to episode number eight, uh, which is Tonight at the Stage Door by Donald Loftus. And we're going to start with my Gary's Giggle, just because our previous play was about a penguin. And the giggle punchline is also about a penguin. It's March in New York City. It's always colder than a penguin's pecker. And I just thought that that was hilarious. So (laughs) not even um, one play removed from our penguin play do we have a uh, good old picker joke <laughs> and it's also true it it's stays also cold true. in it stays cold in march but right now it is not cold it is- this is another uh interesting story here about this playwright who um has such an amazing story about his entrance into the world of theater to start off with but uh further he's been writing forever and he does it when everybody else sleeps. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Like four. his process of waiting up at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And even now that he's retired, he still gets up 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. I love that. He says, you know, I've retired from all of that, but just me working on getting my place sent out, which he says, he said, uh, what is it, like over 2,000 mm-hmm. uh, scripts a year he submit, he sends out for submissions. That's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, he says it's just as much work now as it was when he was managing those big cosmetic companies. So, Yeah, I wrote down that he is really focused and just as dedicated to submitting as he is to writing, if not more. And I think Donald is a perfect person to talk about this, um, but we heard this consistently again throughout season two, another theme from all of our playwrights is you have to submit. And a lot of our female playwrights echoed this again because they're obviously, you know, fighting to get produced. But Donald mentioned it again. He, he, and he mentioned like, you know, I have friends who write and write, but they don't always submit. And he was such a big advocate of getting your work out there and just keep submitting and keep submitting and keep submitting. And he really drove that point home. And I think it's probably more second nature to someone like Donald who just has this amazing sense of resiliency and dedication. And Donald, maybe out of all of the playwrights we've interviewed, is the deepest in love with the theater and has the most unconditional love for the theater. Mm. And I could cry thinking about it and his story and the story he told about his ninth grade teacher taking him under her wing and letting him work off the trip to New York City and how valuable that is. And I could cry thinking about it. (laughs) Check the timestamp, everybody. Theater has changed his life. Our theater is changing his life. Our theater, however you want to, whatever tense you want to give the verb. We all, I mean, a lot of us say the same thing of, of, of what theater has done for who we are, you know? 
um, and bringing us out of our shells. I mean, I think Daniel said, what was it? People came up to him after the show to talk to him and congratulate him. And he said, oh my God, this makes people come to me. I don't have to come to them. And it opened a whole new social socialization door. Uh, yeah. And, and, and anyway, and just, you know, just how, you know, for me writing and producing and, and performing and directing and all of those things, it's all very personal. And I just loved, I loved hearing the, um, I, you, you said it again, you said it right. Like he's just in love with theater. You know, he has such respect for what theater is and what theater does and has done for him. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that he probably has been living his dream for a long time. But he knew what he had to do to get to this point, you know, and he, I know we've all missed it. I walked into the theater where we perform here in Chattanooga just to have a meeting with the owner, you know, a, a week and a half ago. And it was just such an emotional experience just being in that sacred of a place, you know. And to have that sort of sacredness come out in in uh, Donald's play, which was just, it, it was almost like a love letter to what we all missed. You know, that's it, how I... It's completely a love letter because, um, and, and then meeting Donald and talking to him makes so much sense about the nostalgic lens he puts on a present day play. Mm, it was very yeah. striking to me because I read this play without knowing anything about Donald. It's really interesting. So he mentioned it briefly in the interview, but this production of West Side Story was very publicized and sometimes for the wrong reason. There were a lot of people making their Broadway debut, which was amazing. Yes, a diverse cast, amazing. But there were also criticisms of colorism going on in the cast. You know, it was kind of ignoring dark-skinned people of color. There was a huge conflict because one of the performers um, had some sexual assault allegations against them. And so this production also had uh, the previews had people picketing outside this production. So, and none of that comes through in this play because that was not important to the memory of this play or this moment. It really is this view of the hope and the joy and the life that theater gives somebody and what to do when that is lost. I mean, Donald says one of his favorite places is Times Square, which is actually a very (laughs) polarizing place for a lot of New Yorkers. You know, a lot of New Yorkers are like, ugh, Times Square. But he sees the beauty and so many things that other people are ready to dismiss. You know, he's like, Donald sees and loves the most beautiful, exciting, pure parts of a place and a thing. And that was the greatest joy of this interview, was was having him share that with us. Donald also is providing a monologue for our last episode. Um, it's called Joey. It's a different feel to it than Tonight at the Stage Door. on to our ninth episode um with marge o'neill butler's there's new life coming another female playwright writing roles for women uh over the age of beyond yeah and they what is it she said when i started writing i would include at least one female character over the age of 50 right and i just think what what a 
like to make that your specific goal. Thank you, Marge. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Marge was another one who lived such an amazing life and she has a master's in dance, so was a performer as well, which always intrigues me that to have someone who's so well-versed in movement and body to also have such a way with words. Um, I think it's right. always so amazing and wonderful and just speaks to her depth as an artist. Ran a, a theater company with her husband in Vermont, wrote plays for children. There was children's theater. Um, and so she's literally dedicated her whole life and her whole professional life to theater. And then she proceeds to tell us she's still taking writing classes throughout the pandemic. And wants to. Like, that's, like she, that's, that's what she does. She takes writing classes and, and that she thinks everyone should be doing that, you know? Wow, yeah. No, I, it, she, again, like you were surprised with some of our other playwrights, I think this one, Marge surprised, just to have someone who's focused on writing plays for women over, over a certain age, I think that is just, I, I, what a great find. And, and again, this play, I think, the, for me, the, you know, I, I just was, I laughed out loud when I read the line, you know, put in articles for sex over 60. I'm over 70, but I still have some of the moving parts. <laughs> but to go back to Marge about that, yes, she dedicated her whole life and career to theater and then has specifically dedicated herself to, to filling in a gap. And what was so impressive to me about Marge as well is that she's a true ally. The fact that she took the initiative to start Lift Every Voice, Black Women Speak. Um, and you could tell how truly touched she was by this project, how important it was to her. Um, that's more of what we need. She, she really wants to, in a really fierce but quiet way, speak to those points. Yeah, and the monologue that she wrote for our final episode uh, is entitled Something Remembered. And uh, again, just, you know, the character is a young adult female, um, but she is talking about this other woman. And and the, the, the person that Marge creates and the character who's not talking but who's being talked about is just so beautifully crafted mm. um, and i also loved yeah. how marge and you know you mentioned this is a young person speaking in the monologue but marge also took the time to talk about her children and she i love too that someone who's such a fierce female advocate raised two sons i really loved that that aspect of her and and when we when we asked her her questions so much of that revolved around her sons and her family and she talked about the bracelet and we talked about her life and her career being of and in the theater, but it was so very clear that that was not who she was. That did not fully define her, that she was also a mother and a wife and a woman independent of all these other things. And I think that's so beautiful, especially for, for women in the arts. You feel like you have to choose sometimes. And it was so clear that she, she balances these these passions of hers and really like is a full person, which I admire so much. It does seem like it's very clear to, to Marge that she didn't make that choice. She was like, I'm going to be all these things, you know, and we're going to do them all well. Such a great inspiration. So much. I do want to talk about one other thing before we 
wrap up our wrap up on this episode. Um, but I also think Marge had such brilliant insight about writing process and what works for her. And we talked about what an intuitive writer she is. And unlike Donald, she doesn't get up every morning and write. But when she's ready to write, she writes and she goes. And she, I think she said she sometimes um, gets like a character's voice on the wind that like hits her ear. Or she'll <laughs> write with friends or actors in mind. Uh, she hears a phrase in a conversation that a friend says and, and is like, that's a play. Um, but also like one of our... Uh, I think it was Mike talked about writing with a prompt. Uh, Marge doesn't shy away from a prompt either. And I loved, loved her process for writing with a prompt. And I want to bring that up is she said, when I get a prompt, I immediately start writing down anything and everything I can think of that has to do with that prompt, an object, a place, a thing. If a character comes to mind, I start writing out the character and she does this free thought, free write brainstorm session on the prompts and I just thought that anyone who is struggling with writing for a prompt should at least try that approach once because it sounded right, yeah. so brilliant yeah and I'll, and I'll piggyback with one last thing that I remember her saying that I thought was really cool which was I look for opportunities hmm. you know brings us to our last episode of season two our last play um Rosa and Leo and uh, the very awesome conversation that you and Christy had with Adam Zudrich. Okay, I just have to say this right off the bat. I have a huge crush on Adam. I, was, <laughs> I feel like we all do. I feel like probably every listener does. I was completely charmed by him. I could have talked to him for hours. I, I have such a human and talent crush on Adam. I just... And, I mean, the play was was enough to just make me more intrigued by who this person was that wrote it, you know? Um, and then uh, when I reached out to him and said, hey, we'd like to do Rosa and Leo, he's like, oh, yeah, I live in the, the, the outer bush of Australia or whatever. <laughs> I was like... Oh, great. How are we going to do this interview? You know? <laughs> but that just was like so off the grid, you know, like and one of the things that I think that that really impressed me about what he said was and his writing, I think, is very good, first of all. But one of the things that really touched me was he says, you know, my kids are more important than anything I'll ever write. That really touched me in a way that I think I think that phrase there is sort of like uh summarizes his approach to what he creates because everything that he creates just has so much heart there's so much sincerity in in his stories that i, I maybe it comes from the fact that he doesn't take his writing more seriously than he does his life or his children so yeah i think that's that is the heart to adam's heart probably is that yeah. that summation right there so adam brilliantly kind of gives us that discovery moment of when he realized that he could create an empathetic relationship between the audience and the actors. And it seems to me that that is his driving force in all of his works. And I love that he sh shared that discovery moment with us. And he talks about that spider play that he wrote where the characters are spiders 
And he even says, you know, it's not a line that I wrote or a stage direction I wrote. It's just that the, the spider turns and walks away from the other one. And the whole audience goes, aww. And he said at that moment, he realized, oh, I should, I should do more of those. I should write more of right. those. Adam is so refreshingly aware of his privilege in a way that many right. other cisgendered, heterosexual white men are not. That was so beautiful and so genuine. And that's all leading me to say that none of this is manipulative. Adam is so genuine. And I think that discovery of the empathy within the audience just filled him in a way that genuinely drove him to write these other beautiful plays and this desire to widen the scope. He really, right. in the same way that Marge is so able to look outside of herself, Adam is so able to look outside of himself in a way that is so admirable. And perhaps that's why I, I fell in love with him. <laughs> the accent doesn't hurt. And that story about, you know, they're about encouraging older women to tell their stories and that his play slow dating which uh, admittedly i still have not read because i just i don't want to read it yet <laughs> I, want, I i because i know when i read it i'm going to want to produce it somehow and i just don't have a space for it right now yeah and in the same way that i said marge is a true ally adam is as well and that's that's all that the underrepresented are asking are for people with a place of privilege to turn around and put their hand out and really do something about it. And both of these playwrights are really doing something about it. They're not just talking the talk. That truly, truly touched me. Even, I mean, his art is amazing. His heart is amazing. But that allyship um, really was inspirational to me. That was, that was one of my favorite parts of yeah. getting to know him. Adam really, really sort of symbolizes what what I hope that this podcast does for playwrights and for people interested in playwriting uh, is to give us an insight into the people that create the stories that we tell. Yeah. yeah you're right. A, a perfect end to yeah. season two. Um, and uh, my punchline, um, I think, is just what... Uh, it, 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 it's it, it's a little serendipitous and a little hopeful, um, although it was really funny delivered by Deb in the play, which was, now that you're older, you're a full wit. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> I, I mean, that's just like, uh, it's a punchline to, to you know, um, to, to the moment. But, oh, God, like, now that I'm older, I want to be a full wit. Yeah. Thank you, Adam, for that wonderful play. And. Again, thank, thank you all for listening. And all of our other playwrights, uh, Marge and Daniel and Donald and Mike and Donna and Dana, Judy yeah, and Guy and Ken, all 10 of you guys, um, thank you so much for giving us your words and your stories uh, for season two. Uh, please send us more stuff for seasons three through 525,000. Uh, because we're going to keep doing this as long as we can, because we love it. We had so much fun. We have so much fun doing it and um, getting to know you guys. And, this is about uh, building community, so please join us. And we have one more episode. The monologue episode will go up the end of season two, and 
Uh, we got some really, really, really good work and some really good actors, some of which you've heard before and some of whom you haven't. So join us and follow ETC on Facebook and Instagram. I love you all. I love Dana, you. It's good to talk to you as always. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in Southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight and Casey Keelan as the associate producer. <laughs>